Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is by Allison Gopnik, The New Promise of Psychedelics. Then an article by B. Wilson, Is Fruit Getting Sweeter? Sabella O.J. wrote, Does Anyone Need a Dozen Deodorants? Christopher Mims, New Speakers Will Change Sound. And we'll follow that up with an article by Mike Kerrigan, A Life Hack, If You Can Keep It. All of these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, The New Promise of Psychedelics. Recently, there has been a remarkable renaissance of medical research into psychedelic drugs, which were widely banned a half century ago. The risks and dangers of these drugs still need to be better understood, but it's becoming clear that they may have important potential benefits. New studies suggest that psychedelics, carefully administered in controlled settings with trained therapists, can help treat mental illnesses like depression, addiction, and PTSD. But just how do psychedelics achieve these therapeutic effects? A new study in the journal Nature by the neuroscientist Gold Dogen at Johns Hopkins and colleagues tackles this question. What psychedelics have in common, the study finds, is that they return the relatively rigid, developed adult brain to a more flexible, open state, more like the childhood brain. This may be the key to their positive effects. Each of the classic psychedelic drugs, MDMA, ecstasy, LSD, ketamine, ibogaine is a different kind of chemical with a different effect on the brain. MDMA leads to strong feelings of social connection. The LSD experience is more like solitary mysticism. Ketamine is also an anesthetic. The effect of some lasts for hours, others for days. And of course, people can have similar experiences without chemicals the ecstasies of religious mystics, or the epiphanies of romantic poets. To search for what unites these drugs, Dolan's team gave mice a variety of psychedelics and observed their effects. Mice, like people, have what are called critical periods for various kinds of development, times when the brain is especially open to new experiences and and especially likely to learn and change. After a critical period closes, that type of learning is much harder. These specific critical periods reflect a more general phenomenon. Brains start out more plastic, easier to change and more sensitive to experience, and get more efficient but more rigid as people or mice grow older. One critical period for mice involves social learning. Young mice do better than their elders at a task that involves learning about other mice. In the study of the psychedelics, they all reopened this critical period. Adult mice under their influence learned like younger ones. 
Neither cocaine nor saline had this effect. The researchers also found that the drugs that lasted longer in humans led to a longer reopening of critical periods in mice. As expected, the different drugs acted through different chemical mechanisms, but all of them ultimately activated genes that made the brain more plastic, more easily changed. Other research shows that psychedelics may reopen other kinds of critical periods. For example, lazy eye must be treated early for the visual cortex to rewire properly. But a 2020 study published in Current Biology found that ketamine reopened the visual critical period in mice, allowing older animals to recover from laser eye. These results have important implications for psychedelic therapy. We know that the effects of psychedelics depend on set and setting, the context and the attitude of the person who takes them, and that psychedelic experiences can feel wonderful or terrible to the user. The new research suggests that psychedelics work by opening up the brain to new possibilities, allowing it to escape from old ruts, change, and learn. That might give humans a chance to change addictive habits or destructive thought patterns. But the chemicals themselves don't determine how the brain changes or what it learns. Any transformation depends on what happens next. The potential medical benefits depend on therapists making sense of the disruptive experience, ensuring that the mind and brain settle in a better place. And now, is fruit getting sweeter? By B. Wilson. These are so sweet. I can't manage very many, said a friend at my table one summer's evenings a couple of years ago. She wasn't talking about dessert, but about a bowl of glossy, dark, fresh cherries. I bit into the taut skin of another luscious cherry with its sweet crimson juices and realized that she was right. These fruits were so sweet, it was as if they had been pre-sugared. It's not that sweet cherries are anything new. You only have to read Elizabethan love poems with their references to cherry lips to see that sugary sweet cherries have been a summer treat for hundreds of years. But the cherries of my childhood, which my sister and I used to dangle over our ears like earrings, were much less uniformly sweet than today's cherries. Some of them were hardly sweet at all, which made it all the more exciting when you happened upon a super sweet one. Is modern fruit bred to be sweeter than in the past? The short answer is yes, though the longer answer is more complicated. Some of the most powerful evidence that fruit is sweeter than before comes from zoos. In 2018, it was reported that Melbourne Zoo in Australia had stopped giving fruit to most of its animals because cultivated fruit was now so sweet that it was causing tooth decay and weight gain. The monkeys at the zoo were weaned off bananas onto a lower-sugar, vegetable-based diet. Among fruit breeders, the word quality is now routinely used as a synonym for high in sugar though firmness, color, and size are also considerations. In 2010, in an article looking at ways to enhance the sweetness of fruit using molecular approaches, 
a group of Korean plant scientists wrote that, in general, the sugar content of many fruits are now higher than before owing to continuous selection and breeding. Modern apple varieties, the scientists noted, were on average sweeter than older ones. Breeding isn't the only reason that modern fruit is sweeter. There's also climate change. Research from Japan found that since the 1970s, with rising temperatures, Fuji apples, which were already a sweet variety, have become significantly sweeter and softer. The lead researcher, Toshihoko Sugira, said that if you could taste an apple harvested 30 years ago, you would feel the difference. It is sometimes claimed that the sweetness of modern fruit is not due to higher sugar content so much as the fact that the bitterness and sourness of wild fruit has been steadily bred out of it. There's a grain, but only a grain of truth in this. Studies of wild apples do indeed suggest that some ancient varieties were just as high in sugar as a modern pink lady or honeycrisp. The difference is that there was much wider variation in the sugar content across wild apples, whereas the modern supermarket apple seldom drops below a certain level of sweetness. Even now, not all fruits are as sweet as others. The sugar content of fruit is measured using something called the BRICS scale, which refers to the percentage of sugar by mass. Modern cherries are routinely 20 degrees BRICS or more, while most of the fresh peaches on the market, at least in Europe, range from 9 to 12 degrees. According to plant breeder and scientist Marco Cirilli, this means that the average peach still has a flavor somewhere between harsh and tasteless, though in my experience you can improve even a mediocre peach by leaving it in a bowl on a sunny windowsill for a few days. So really is part of an Italian project called MASPES, MAPSIS, that is developing new, higher sugar peach varieties. He tells me that in trials, they have succeeded in growing peaches with a brick score as high as 25, but this isn't easy to reproduce. The sweetness of fruit depends not just on how it is bred, but also on growing conditions. More sun means more sweetness, yield, higher yield means lower sugar, and when it is harvested, the longer fruit stays on the tree, the sweeter and fuller tasting it is. Jim Cooper, an apple farmer in England, tells me that modern apples are picked so early that even if they are bred for sweetness, they often don't develop their full character, be it sweetness, aromatic qualities, or intensity of flavor. Many of the subtler aromas never develop in fruit that is harvested too early. Cooper laments the fact that many people will never taste the strawberry hint in a really ripe English Worcester Pearmain a type of heritage apple. With the rise in sweeter and blander fruit, our expectations of how fruit should taste have also changed. Whether we are talking apples or peaches, Europeans and Americans tend to favor fruits that are both acid and sweet, whereas in Asia, the most popular fruits are intensely sweet with hardly any acidity. Cyrilli tells me that in Asian countries, 
The honey flavors of low-acid peaches are much appreciated, while European consumers prefer peaches that are slightly acidic, but still with a BRICS score over 15. All around the world, the common thread in what people want from fruit is sweetness. Many of our old dessert recipes need to be adjusted to take account of the fact that fruit is sweeter than it was. I recently met Rosalind Rathaus, a cooking teacher who has been making apple strudel since the 1970s. The difference is that she no longer uses any sugar in her recipe, just a little cinnamon. A few years ago, Rathaus, who runs the cookery school in London, realized that with modern varieties of dessert apple, no extra sugar was required to make a delicious strudel. In a way, the rise of consistency sweet of fruit in our lifetimes has been a triumph of plant breeding. After all, it's a rare person who would seek out bitter grapes, astringent apricots, or watery melons if they could have sweet ones instead. But the ubiquitous sweetness of modern fruit is not without its problems, especially for people with diabetes, who have to be careful to moderate their intake of higher sugar fruits such as pineapple. Fruit that is bred sweeter also tends to be lower in the phytochemicals that make it so healthy. Health aside, maybe the real problem with modern fruit is that it's become yet another sweet thing in a world awash with sugar. Even grapefruits, which used to be bracingly bitter, are sometimes now as sweet as oranges. Fruit that is bred for one-dimensional sweetness, as opposed to aroma or texture, denies us some of the contrast and variety of life. If you've never tasted a sour cherry, how can you fully appreciate a sweet one? And Sabella OJ's, does anyone need a dozen deodorants? New Sense Allure Collectors, Fruity for Date Nights. How many kinds of deodorant does anyone really need? For most people, the answer is one. Not for Renee Shelby. The 42-year-old public service employee has amassed a collection of deodorant gels, solids, and sprays that fills two shelves in her New York City apartment. She picks and chooses from them according to her plans and her mood, treating them almost like perfumes. She uses about four a day, she says, including a fragrant one for her gym workouts and a stronger one for boxing classes. When she's away from home, she might carry around as many as 17. I'm obsessed with them, she says. The other day I saw that there's a deodorant that smells like a cherry blossom, and I was like, I have to get it. After years of poultry sales increases, deodorant has become one of the fastest growing categories in the self-care industry, according to consumer products giant Unilever and cosmetic retailer Ulta Beauty. Unilever says that U.S. consumers, on average, are now using two different kinds of deodorants a week. Procter & Gamble, which sells the native, Old Spice, and Secret brands, says its research shows that nearly 90% of U.S. consumers want some level of scent from their deodorants and antiperspirants to be noticed by those around them. The burgeoning array of aromas to choose from now includes candy cane, eucalyptus sea salt, and cashmere mints. 
Beauty brands launch deodorants in new scents depending on what's trading in the fragrances market, says Lee Stapleton, site director at Sensory Spectrum, a consulting firm that tests products in focus groups. Companies are marketing deodorants to use not only on armpits. Loom Deodorant advertises products for all body parts. Consumers are using them on their thighs and feet. Miami lawyer Gabriela Morea, 34, used to buy only one deodorant at a time. Now she has five. She has put them into regular rotation, using at least three a week. I got my mom into trying different new deodorants, she says. A Philadelphia inventor developed the first underarm deodorant in the late 1880s. Several decades passed before women began using it regularly. The first commercial brand, Mum, recommended in advertisements that it be applied to avoid the gravest social offense. By the Great Depression, men too had taken up the habit. Siboan Ramos and her husband, Dan Ramos, are both expanding their collections at their home in Lakeland, Florida. Miss Ramos, 39, spent years trying different deodorants. Now she has 10 different scents. She says she associates different scents with different activities. Candy cane when she's feeling depressed, mint to feel calm, and fruity for date nights. Her favorite is strawberry vanilla taffy. Her most unusual, sour berry belts. We both like smelling good for one another, so I think it's romantic, she says. Ramos includes deodorants in the birthday and Christmas gift packages she sends her mother in Ireland. A recent shipment contained a deodorant with a scent called Mint Cookie Cupcake. Her husband got into deodorants as a junior in high school, he says, so I wouldn't end his gym classes with some fairly offensive odor, to say the least. He now has a collection of about a dozen deodorants, which he uses as fragrances. It's like the new cologne. His favorites smell like ice cream, fruit, and candy. I love the fact that there are varieties that smell good enough to eat, he says. Deodorants, unlike antiperspirants, don't block sweat. The problem is that people don't know the difference between a deodorant and an antiperspirant, which is why they have to reapply deodorants so many times a day, said Alicia Barba, a Miami-based dermatologist. Deodorants only mask the smell of the armpit. Beauty companies are responding to stepped-up demand. Ulta Beauty, which has more than 1,300 stores, in 2021 added wellness shops to 400 of them that featured 80 different deodorants. The number of stores offering this special section is expected to reach over 1,000 by the end of this year. Our customers like to switch off between scents, says Penny Coy, Ulta Beauty's Vice President of Skin Care, Sun Care, and Fragrance. Deodorant sales for Unilever, whose brands include Dove and Axe, grew in the first quarter by a high double-digit percentage from the year earlier period. Sophia Mix, an 18-year-old from Detroit, says she owns just one deodorant spray, but she aspires to have a wardrobe filled with deodorants. So far, perfumes take up most of her monthly beauty budget. 
I would be willing to pay for a deodorant as much as I pay for a luxury perfume, she says. I just haven't found the right one yet. And Christopher Mims, new speakers will change sound. The way humans reproduce recorded sound could change more in the next decade than it has in the past century. What's coming are solid-state speakers, etched from wafers of ultra-pure silicon, like microchips. That means they operate like nothing available today, and also that they have capabilities that no existing sound reproduction system can match. This technology also embodies a broader trend, the conversion of all electronic components to solid-state silicon that has profound consequences for how we interact with the world. While speakers have remained relatively unchanged, nearly all the components in our phones, from sensors to the antenna that allow them to wirelessly connect, are all now made by the billions with the same technology and most of the same materials used to make microchips. The technology that has made this transition possible, called MEMS, M-E-M-S, short for Microelectromechanical Systems, is the reason an entire 1990s Radio Shack's worth of gear can be crammed into the slim slabs of touch-sensitive glass that now fit in our pockets. So far in speakers, there are only a handful of products shipping that use MEMS technology. I've tried one product, a prototype in-ear monitor of the sort used by audio engineers and was impressed by its performance. Peter Cooney, founder of SAR Insight and Consulting, which tracks the audio technology industry, has been following the world of MEMS-based or solid-state speakers for a decade. And this year and the next are, he says, when they will finally arrive in the kinds of devices regular consumers might buy, such as high-end wireless earbuds. One company building this tech, XMEMS, has made available prototypes of its speakers to dozens of companies, and over 30 of them are working on earbuds and other products based on the technology, says a company spokesman. One recipient of prototype in-ear monitors, the kind of high-fidelity earbuds professional use when mastering musical tracks, is Brian Lucy. A mastering engineer of nine Grammy Award winners, Lucy told me that the solid-state speakers in the in-ear monitors he's using have become indispensable. But eventually, this technology could be everywhere, in every smartphone and in nearly all the earbuds, smart glasses, and various other hearables that are on the way to market. Indeed, there is reason to think these solid-state speakers could come from a familiar brand in the not-too-distant future. One of the manufacturers working on integrating it into consumer devices, China-based Luxshare, manufactures Apple's iPods, as well as its new Vision Pro headset. Luxshare and Apple did not respond to requests for comment. The things that make sound inside most speakers, whether they're the kind attached to your stereo or those inside a pair of earbuds, nearly all operate on the same principle as the first loudspeaker, 
introduced in 1876 by Alexander Graham Bell. Inside the speaker is a magnet, and inside of that is a coil of wire, which is attached to a stiff but flexible membrane, which you've seen if you've ever taken the grill off the front of a speaker cabinet. Pulses of electricity traveling through the wire are turned into vibrations, which the membrane translates into the movement of air that we call sound. MEMS-based speakers consolidate all those parts into a single unit. As a result, it can be much smaller, while also offering greater clarity and potentially requiring less power. These speakers use a principle already widely exploited in MEMS-based devices called piezoelectricity. Piezoelectric substances move when you put electricity through them. Some of them move quite fast. For example, the tiny comic antenna in your phone vibrate billions of times a second. These substances can be made from silicon with a thin film of piezo materials added on top. Austria-based U-Sound, which along with Santa Clara, California-based XMEMS, appears to be in the lead in bringing this tech to the market make solid-state speakers that use tiny amounts of piezoelectric material layered on top of silicon to move a piston that attaches to a membrane to generate sound. It's as if the engineers at U.S. Sound replaced the coil of wire and the magnet in a typical speaker with a piece of silicon. The engineers at XMEMS take things a step further. Their entire speaker, including its vibrating membrane, is fashioned on a wafer of ultra-pure silicon. MEMS-based speakers could be as little as one millimeter thick, a quarter of the thickness of what are typically the smallest speaker used in devices like smartphones and earbuds, says Andrea Rusconi Sarici, Chief Technology Officer of U-Sound, which was founded in 2014. The biggest application for this technology is the market for wireless earbuds, which is about 400 million pairs a year, says Cooney. Of course, to get traction, the technology actually has to offer something you can't get without today's conventional earbuds. So I tried it out for myself. I was surprised to find that trying out some favorite tracks on solid-state earbuds exposed details even instruments I hadn't noticed before and which I couldn't pick out using even higher-end conventional in-ear buds. But earbuds and later, over-the-headphones, are only the beginning of what's possible for these devices. One potential application is implantable speakers for people with hearing loss, says Cooney. Meanwhile, recent changes made by the FDA have made it possible for companies to sell over-the-counter hearing aids. Because solid-state speakers excel at generating the higher frequencies where hearing loss occurs first, they could be ideal for this application. And now Mike Kerrigan's A Life Hack If You Can Keep It. When a colleague used the term life hack some years back, I confessed unfamiliarity. It was clear from context that she meant a clever shortcut, but I had never called it by that name or any other, not when I could simply call my friend Chad. Chad, who I've known for more than three decades, is a walking life hack. He 
He takes seriously the Socratic assertion that the unexamined life is not worth living and is considered the canniest method for doing most everything. Recently, I had occasion to recall one of his chestnuts. My red-eye flight to London had landed at dawn. My colleague John, with whom I was meeting, had caught a flight from Atlanta two hours behind my own. I took a car from Heathrow Airport to the hotel, where I checked in and awaited John's arrival. The challenge was to stay awake for two hours to avoid losing the business day. I remembered one of Chad's teachings from our college days. It's impossible to fall asleep with only one shoe and sock off, but the other shoe on and shoe singed tightly. I removed my left shoe and sock, tightened the knot on my right shoe for good measure, and confidently stretched out on the bed. Almost immediately I fell asleep. Thankfully, I'd left my iPhone on my chest, so I woke when John called me on his ride into London. No business day was lost. Disappointed in an unprecedented flop for Chad's usually clever tips, I called him when I returned home. Chad, I began, I tried your one-shoe-and-sock-off trick for staying awake as soon as I got to my hotel room after an overnight flight. It didn't work. What gives? Driving, he clarified. Taking one shoe and sock off helps keep you awake when you're driving. Then smelling blood. Did you seriously think you could remove a shoe, hit the rack after a red eye, and not fall asleep? I didn't dignify the question with an answer, for it's a poor craftsman who blames his tools, especially when he has used his saw as a hammer. A life hack is only as good as a life hacker's ability to follow instructions. To ensure that always happens, I'll phone Chad. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.